but the thing that that I don't know that we give enough credence to on the Henry Mountains is the fires that happened down there in I want to say the early 2000s. Yeah. And I, I can remember being on the Henry Mountains maybe just a year or two post fire. Robbie, I had to stop my truck, put it in park, get out, and my jaw was on the ground with how well the shrub community and especially Cliff Rose was coming back just a year or two after the fire. Mm -hmm. And it was jaw-dropping. I had never seen such drastic uh, post-fire recovery from, you know, some of the best plants for mule deer. Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Good morning, Rockslide. Welcome to the Rockcast. While a few Boone and Crockett bucks have come from most counties in most western states, there are big concentrations of record book bucks from just a handful of counties. Counties like Caribou and Adams in Idaho, Mesa, Garfield, and Eagle in Colorado, Rio Arriba in New Mexico, Rivali and Flathead counties in Montana, Lincoln counties in both Wyoming and Nevada, and Cache and Washington counties in Utah. When looking at the books, many of these counties produce 10 to 1 over other counties, even in close proximity. I've spent the last 25 years gathering and submitting jawbones from bucks taken from across the West, both my own bucks and that of other hunters. I'd submit these jawbones to Matson's lab, and while I didn't always have a picture of the buck, it was clear that bucks really began to show size in the five-year-old range, but could be big as early as three years old. I noticed also that bucks could be in the seven to ten-year-old range, but still not be considered big, so there must be something else going on. What causes this phenomenon of record book bucks being concentrated in just a few counties in each state? Is it genetics, nutrition, management, health of the mother, or some other combination of these? Or could it even be something we don't understand? Most big buck hunters want to spend their time where they have the best chance at a Boone and Crockett buck, but is that the only place we should be hunting? I've thought about many of these things for years, and um, I decided to pull in an expert here in the field of uh, nutrition and genetics and many other things, wildlife science. Uh, My friend, uh, Randy Larson from BYU, he's a professor there. Uh, He's in the Department of Plant and Wildlife Resources. He supervises 150 grad students, which are are our next generation of land and wildlife managers. He's got a PhD from Utah State in good old Logan. Utah. Uh, That's in wildlife biology. So I would consider someone like Randy an expert in field. And we're really thankful that he's coming on the podcast today. Um, I'll I'll announce this at the end, but if you want to follow Randy, go to Wildlife Prof on Instagram. That's right. I found a, a biologist with a PhD on Instagram, Wildlife Prof on Instagram. He shares a lot of good stuff on there about mule deer, elk, mountain lions, anything wildlife. Give him a follow, but also give him a welcome today on the Rockcast. Good morning, Randy Larson. 
Good morning, Robbie. Good to be with you. Good to hear your voice. Hey, man, thank you. And uh, thanks for making time for this. I know that you've been doing the crazy the last uh, few weeks. You're kind of in the the heart of the action down there uh, with all the winter kill in the triple point of Idaho, Utah, and Wyoming. And uh, the, the way I understand it, uh, you must have some responsibilities to report data to the state. Uh, is that what you've been doing the last couple of weeks? Yeah, it's a pretty busy time of year generally, but especially this this year with the big winter. Um, we've got a fun collaboration with uh, the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources where we are plugged in and helping with their mo big monitoring effort. Utah's invested a ton of money and effort into GPS collars, um, and we, our students here on campus, uh, are plugged into that and helping manage those data, pick up, you know, dead animals, you know, figure out what killed them, all that kind of stuff. And so it's been, yeah, the last few weeks have been busy, to say the least. I bet. Well, um, can you can you take a few minutes and tell us uh, what, what you're seeing so far? Today's what, April 18th, tax day, I think it is. Ugh. Um, yeah, tax day. <laughs> <laughs> at least we're talking about mule deer. Um, have yeah, you got we... any preliminary or final findings from what you found down there? You bet. So tax day, no better day for an accounting of what we got going on in Utah with survival rates. <laughs> uh, so these are current. Uh, the GPS callers let you get, you know, as of today type uh, current information. I sent these to uh, Dax Mangus uh, earlier this morning. He's going on Utah's rack tour uh, through southern Utah. So he'll have the latest and greatest updated numbers. It's a bit of a mixed bag. Utah is a pretty diverse state topographically, a lot of variation from north to south. And so in general, as a general statement, there's some really tough spots in northern Utah, especially uh, the Wasatch Back, which would include like the Bear Lake Valley along the Wyoming border, uh, down through the I-80, I-84 interchange, all the way into Heber Valley. Uh, some real tough spots where you've got uh, pretty serious winter loss. Uh, and then there are spots in the central part of the state that are doing okay. And then if you move south uh, in some of the southern units, things are maybe as good as we've ever seen uh, in terms of survival at this point in time uh, since we started tracking all these animals with GPS collars back in 2014. So a mixed bag. Um, if you want to think... I'll kind of give you an example. So uh, the cash unit, which you mentioned in your intro, uh, is, is you know, we've lost all of the radio collared fawns the, this year, which is not unheard of for the cash. That's happened uh, before during bad winters. But you're looking at essentially an estimate of 0% fawn survival for animals that didn't get access to emergency feed. And then, you know, the opposite side of that coin would be the Pine Valley unit where fawn survival is running right now 85% uh, from December 1st, which is the highest we've ever seen since 2014. That is a very high number for fawn survival in late April. Yeah. And, and if you look at the survival curves, essentially, we've got just another month or so, and then those will really flatten out and there won't be much mortality through the summer. So Pine Valley, Monroe, both sort of at record high numbers right now for fawn survival. 
some of the other units are sort of in the middle of where they generally are and then up north on the cash uh we're looking at really low survival up there on the fawns yeah and i i would imagine uh you could uh take that data into extreme southeast idaho uh some of those places that you named in wyoming um yeah. you know maybe they're not at a hundred percent uh mortality but it's got to be very high um but as you said, it's not totally uncommon either to lose a fawn crop. It's not the the end of the world, something we've never heard of. Is that correct? Yeah, no, it's the yeah, there's uh definitely precedent for this in mule deer populations. If you look sort of west wide, uh adult doe survival averages about 85% annually. Mm -hmm. uh, that's sort of a compilation average number from a variety of states across the West. And then fawn survival from six months to one and a half years of age, that one varies a lot. Yes. It can be as low as like 0%, like we're seeing on some units uh, this year, all the way up to maybe 80%. But the sort of composite long-term average is about 44% there. So that, that kind of could be a ballpark. And that's west-wide, correct? Yeah, that's a kind of a compilation study from a bunch of states, a bunch of collar data from around the west. Do we have any historical data, say, going back 30 years to compare that to? Uh, we have, I mean, there is data for sure. There's harvest data. And so you can look back at some of the really big... I'm sorry. I meant I meant on the on the fawn survival, the 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 44%. Um, is that something that we can we can take a snapshot of right now and say, okay, 44% west wide, and look back 30 years and compare it to anything? And we didn't have GPS collars back then. We had radio collars, but uh, you know, we just wasn't as big of a sample size the way I understand yeah, it. Yeah, not as not as much work done. Everything would have been VHF, which is, which means you don't have the really good resolution on the time of year you know maybe you fly and listen to those animals once a quarter or something like that uh but there, you, you can go back some so you know 10 years there would be some data 20 at going back 30 and 40 i think would be tough for a survival estimate uh from collar data there's not just not a lot out there what about just 10 years is that is that a big enough sample size to draw any conclusions from uh, yeah, you can go back 10 years. You know, Utah would have uh, monitoring data that would be collared mule deer that started, I think, in 2009. So you've got close to 15 years there um, that you could easily compare with. And we have seen, I mean, what we're talking about is not unprecedented. It's happened before uh, in the, on the cash unit, for example, in Utah. Just pull this up here and look at it real quick. The winter of 1819, uh, mm -hmm. all the radio colored fawns uh, died. And then there was a winter before that where I think just one or two out of 20 made it. So there is some history and some precedent of low fawn survival. What is maybe more of a concern would be we've got some units, especially the Wasatch back around that I 80, I 84 interchange where you're running. 20 to 25 percent survival this year on adult females that's a that's an owie right there yeah that's a big kind of big blow uh not something that we typically see 
there was a year here where we had about 35% adult female survival on one of the northern units. What year was that? That was, I think, 1819. Got you. When we had that just brutal February. Yeah. And the thing that happened there, and maybe what is helping us in some units this year, 18 was a really bad drought year. Mm -hmm. Drought summer. So deer body fat was really low. They went into winter in poor shape. Then you had a pretty good hard winter. And that resulted in quite a bit of winter mortality. This year, we've had off-the-charts snowfall, snow water equivalent, breaking records. But we went into winter better than we did in 18. So deer were in better shape. Yeah, we had that cool, wet spring. Um, Didn't really dry out till late summer. We did have, you know, a few few timely rains in there. And uh, looking around the West, talking to different people like yourself, and the uh, wildlife agencies that we saw does in great shape going into this winter. Yet, if I'm following you here, in some of those really bad areas, we're still seeing higher mortality, uh, even yeah. with improved body fat levels. Yeah. And yes, we are. It's it's really tough in a few spots. Uh, and, you know, that's just part of it, I think. Um well, they'll they'll come back. I mean, we'll, everybody who's hunting will see in these tough spots. You'll see it this fall. Uh, there'll be, you know, not a lot of yearling bucks running around because fawn survival's so low. And then on the units that are really hit hard with reduced adult female survival, you'll see the same thing on the buck side too. I think. Yeah, and it looks like uh, looking at the emails that Utah's been sending me, they are making some permit adjustments in those areas. Um, I just got an email from Idaho last night that uh, same thing, they're reducing antlerless harvest in, um, at least the Eastern Idaho units. Um, I didn't, I I didn't see how extensive that was going to be, but, uh, you know, like you said, they will recover. We've gone through this. I've talked about it on the podcast before. One of the worst winters I've ever seen was in Gunnison Basin in 07, 08. And they still got back on their feet um, a few years later. You know, we had catastrophic numbers like what you're talking about today. Um, So uh, as bad as this is, I still, after doing this for a decade or so, I still think I would probably take a bad winter over drought, Robbie. And I, I, I say that knowing full well that we've lost a whole fawn crop on some units this year. And we're looking at 20 to 25% adult survival on some units. But when you get those long-term droughts that last multiple years, that's got all kinds of downstream consequences on habitat that lasts multiple generations for these animals. And here we're going to lop off a bunch of them this winter, but the, the landscape's going to be a little bit rejuvenated and refreshed with all this moisture. So... It's not a pleasant situation to be in, especially if you're a hunter, but I still think I'd take it what we've got this year over some epic drought. And thanks for pointing that out, Randy, because that's what I've learned in these long-term droughts that land, um, run multiple years. You still lose your fawn crop. You just lose it slowly. Um, your fawn production goes way down because the habitat 
is not in good shape. The, the, the dough health is not in good shape. So you start seeing your, your fawn production go down either in, either in birth rates or in the weight of the fawns. And so they don't have good overwinter survivability. And that's why I was kind of hitting on that number there at the beginning, about a 44% West wide fawn survival, uh, because the people I've rubbed shoulders with in the game and fish departments that, you know, if you want a, a growing, healthy deer herd, uh, you know, you need to be 50% or above on, on your fawn survival. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, that's definitely, uh, one of the more important components to growth. Also, the other important piece would be that adult doe survival. Uh, but yeah, if you can, if you can average 50% or above on fawn survival, you've got real chances to grow. Uh, I can remember, here's an interesting little, just side note, speaking of fawn weight and drought. I can remember one year uh, on the San Juan unit in Utah. So that's, you know, one of the, got some history and some fame to it. San Juan Elk Ridge kind of locations down in southeastern Utah. And one year, let me look here, 2017, we were catching fawns uh, in December. So they're six months old and they're clocking in at like 50 pounds as an average when in general, they're up in the upper 60s, 70s, even 80 pound range. Mm -hmm. And that year was not, you know, some kind of epic winter, but we still, over the course of the subsequent year that they were monitored with GPS collars, lost every single one of those. And they were vulnerable to coyotes, even bobcats when they're down in that small mm -hmm. size class are, are able to take them. And so you, you know, same scenario as we got going on in the north this year, lost every fawn, but just a function of drought and small body size, body mass, as opposed to big winter. So I think, it, I mean, it's tough. I don't want to discount what's happening, but I think I'd still take it over bad drought. No, I'm with you. And I remember in the epic winter of 92, 93, that, you know, we, it, it was as bad in in many places it is, as it is this winter and you know that was coming off of five years of drought in many places yeah. in the west um really high deer herds you know and uh you know a lot of people were happy with the size of the deer herd but i still remember you know a few biologists telling me this isn't good to have this many deer on the landscape this was prior to that winter and yeah. uh you know we were it was the only time in my life i've seen two deer areas uh in idaho where you could actually uh, take two deer and, um, you know, there was an outcry over that too, but then that winter hit and we lost deer in, 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 in proportion to what we're losing now. And some of those same guys are like, see it, when we run a high deer herd like that, it's something's going to come in and level it off. You know, we might as well take some of them through hunting. Um, because when, when the, when the weather comes and, and they can't get through the winter, you, you're going to have a higher percentage of loss at all ages if there's too many deer on the landscape and sure. uh but the next spring 93 we not only had a hard winter we had a wet spring um on top of it kind of like what we're having this year and i remember the habitat biologists coming back in like august with huge smiles on their face like you should see the leaders on these on the bitter brush I, that was some measurement they were taking for a study that they were doing i think it's how they were tracking habitat health i 
don't don't quote me on all that, but I do remember they're like, wow, the, the the habitat is just so rejuvenated and just in just like a 12 month time from record drought. And sure enough, as we got into 94 and 95 and 96, you know, our fawn production picked right back up. People that have followed my writing and my articles, I talked about, you know, 96 was kind of a big buck year west wide and 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 i and i think what we had is a, a lower deer population in the west from the 92 93 so there wasn't a lot of competition for resource amongst the deer um you know smaller nope. smaller deer herd will do that and then you know our prime dr uh, uh mackie out of montana i think back in the 80s did a lot of work on uh, buck survival in hard winters. And what he found was that the prime age bucks, two, three, four years old, they they do pretty good through those hard winters um, as a percentage wise, you know, they don't die off like the old, the old grandpas and the, and the very young bucks, you know, the yearlings. And, 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 and so you got those bucks coming up through the age classes. And so by, by 95, 96, Th- those were some peak years around here. And, and I was also hunting Colorado then for just, just big, big bucks. And I, w- I don't want to say, you know, they were behind every tree. It wasn't like that, but um, you know, if you could find bucks, you were seeing quality and, and that's, yeah. that kind of just made me realize that, well, you know, sometimes these, the, these hard winters aren't, aren't such a bad thing, you know, that the deer are cyclical. They always have been. I mean, you go back and study through the last century, you know, our peak was in the, in the sixties by most accounts yet, what was going on in the thirties and forties and fifties, you know, there wasn't hardly any population in the West compared to now yet. We still saw that peak then. So it's always been, been cyclical. And, uh, and so that's why I like to talk to guys like you and kind of flesh some of this stuff out because as hunters, you know, we're so emotional and I fall into it too. Like, Oh man, it's so bad. And it's always going to be bad. It's never going to get better. You know, let Let's go roast the fishing game. You know, you, you, you kind of fall into that stuff, but if I can kind of, you know, stand back at 10,000 feet and take a look at it, it's like, nah, this is the, this is the cyclical nature of mule deer. And, you know, it can kind of be expected. It's more the norm than the exception. Would you agree with any of that? Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. And I, I wish we could sort of as a, as a public at large, get a little more sense of this resource uh, in terms of bucks as being a little bit a little bit ephemeral uh, it does cycle you can't it, it's difficult to stockpile them mm-hmm. uh, i give you give you an example here from my own hunting uh, history i love to hunt the the manta unit in utah it's just one of utah's kind of bread and butter um, management units it's managed as a general season unit and one year we we rented llamas, my friends and I, and we packed way into the back country, had a great time, and ended up harvesting uh, a big buck, thirty inch buck, uh, that <clears throat> what you know didn't score great, probably had regressed a bit, maybe a hundred and sixty five inch type deer, but a legitimate thirty inches, big saggy belly, and just like you, we pulled teeth on it. Uh, had it aged and it came back as a nine and a half year old mm-hmm. and we were you know we were kind of excited but well when we when we killed it we were excited because it was it was a big buck but then when he got the age back it just brought a whole new sort of a dimension and a whole new set of understanding thinking about my goodness this thing survived all these years you know and i was thinking about maybe it dodged 
cars on some highways during the winter and had to get through all these hunting seasons, made it through without getting killed by a mountain lion, all that kind of stuff. But then, uh, I don't know, I put one of these on Instagram the other day. Um, if you look at now with all this harvest or all this caller data, GPS caller data, and you start doing some of the math, uh, this buck, you know, would have been born, the ratio, sex ratio at birth would have been pretty close to 50-50. So if you dropped a thousand fawns on the landscape uh, when it was born, uh, 500 of them are bucks. And then you got to make it to six months of age. And if you look at all the literature out there across the West, survival from zero to six months of age averages about 50%. Uh, and it can be a little higher than that. It can be lower than that, but the average is about 50%. So now you say, okay, we, we had 500 bucks by the, that, that hit the ground in June. By the time we got to December when this thing was born, we're at, 250 and then we just talked just a minute ago about uh, fawn survival averaging you know 44 percent across the west so now those 250 bucks that are left at six months of age we're lopping off about another half only 44 percent of those are going to make it to one and a half years of age mm -hmm. and then there's some new information now that's come out uh from gps caller studies that shows that the teenage age class, the one and a half to two and a half year olds are actually really vulnerable too. Okay. They're especially vulnerable to mountain lions and and uh, vehicles on roads. And their survival averages just above 50%. So then you, you take another 50% off and then, okay, now you're in the adult age class. This buck would have been two and a half years old. What's its survival all the way to nine and a half and that's going to be sort of low 80 percent range maybe mid 80 percent range anyways you start doing the math and that deer in the absence of hunting is like a one in a thousand deer to be nine and a half years old in and the then, absence of hunting that's the, yeah. key, the key phrase there with no harvest yeah. data plugged into that right and then you put harvest superimposed on that and you just think wow my goodness uh and everybody you know, we all like killing those old bucks. And for everybody that's hunting, if you're not submitting your teeth for, uh, you know, to a lab to get aged, you're missing out on a cool piece of information on those trophies that y'all harvest. But anyways, you start doing that math and you start thinking about it's just hard to those kind of survival rates. And we're all working hard to improve them all and increase them. But with, with that kind of backdrop, it's hard to stockpile. Uh, a big population of old mature bucks just difficult it is and we've got you know multiple units around the west where we're attempting to do that and the downside is is you never get a go yeah you can't draw them so um, i mean i'm not not against managing for older age class bucks you know i want to do that too but you know to to get them to the level of stockpiled you know, what, what we all have in our mind of what a buck hunt should be, that's pretty difficult. A lot of things have to go right for that to happen weather-wise and, and things like that. And then you have to exclude a lot of participation to get to, to those levels. So that's a great example that you just gave there, Randy. And for the, I mentioned it earlier, uh, if you're driving, just keep driving. But if you're not, jump on wildlife 
prof on Instagram, wildlife prof. And he's got that story pinned to the top of, of his uh, Instagram uh, page there. And it's uh, posted January 26th. There's a picture of the buck too. And a, a good buck, good buck. Uh, everybody should see that. But he breaks all that down there if you want to read through that. Um, I saw that a few weeks ago when you posted that. Um yeah. So, well, before we leave this uh, kind of where we're at with with Utah uh, and everything, um, we were when I opened the podcast, I was talking about uh, concentration of Boone and Crockett bucks in in the different states. You know, it always seems like there's one or two or three really shining counties and sometimes just one. Um, I threw out cash in uh, Washington uh, for Utah. I don't know if you follow Boone and Crockett much, but. Um, did, did, did I miss any counties that you think are, are, are exceptional for producing, uh, really big bucks, you know, but we're going to talk about genetics here in a minute, but for, for whatever reason, do you, do, is there any other counties besides those two that I put in there? Oh, you'll be better versed than me on that. Um, I think there's, there's some older records that are, there's a, there was sort of a, uh, a batch of pretty big bucks that came out of Carbon County. But I, yes. but I think that those are older records. Gotcha. Um, obviously, we've got some of the famous units that are managed very conservatively here, like the Henry Mountains or Antelope Island or the Ponsagant, you know, that are that would be turning out uh, large antlers. But yeah, yeah, you'll know it better than me, Robbie. Gotcha. And it can kind of be a little bit deceiving, like um, if... You know, right now for places that are putting out Boone and Crockett bucks, if they're heavily managed, like some of those units you just uh, mentioned, to me, that's almost like artificially pumping up the data uh, because now, you know, you've you've roped off an area, only a, a few amount of hunters can can hunt it, you know, in intensive management. And so, of course, if it's if they've got the genetics there to, to grow Boone and Crockett bucks, you're going to see a, a big uptick on those. But that's why I kind of like to look at the historical records before, you know, intensive management started, you, you know, going back into the 70s and 80s and everything for argument's sake was managed kind of the same, you know, it was, um, you know, just over the counter tags, you know, there wasn't a, a lot of draw tags, you know, focusing on growing big deer. And, and so then you got to see the West kind of naturally express these units that were, were really capable of, of growing outsized, uh, bucks. And, uh, and so that's where I pulled a lot of that data from there in the intro. Uh, but I think you'll, you'll still see it you know, change over the years as different management strategies. And these other things too, we're talking about weather and, you know, things like that. We're certainly yeah. going to see a shift this year. And when Colorado went to all limited licenses and they actually were stockpiling bucks in the, you know, mid to late two thousands before that really big winter came in and spanked us in 07 and 08, um, you were seeing uh, those, those historical counties really come back, but also everywhere, even other counties that, you know, didn't really produce a lot. They were still, you know, seeing an uptick in those. So totally interesting. We'll use that as a segue to go into the next part of our uh, podcast here, which is really nutrition versus genetics. And I, I'm always talking about kind of myths that hunters subscribe to on this podcast, uh, because over the years, you know, I've subscribed to a few and then later on, I find out that they're, they're not correct. And, and I think I've always said, how you think is how you hunt, all right? And that's why it's so important to have good data and, and be thinking right, because it'll make you a better hunter. And uh, believing in myths and all these other things, they never helped me. They, they never did. They made me a worse hunter. So I'll give you a myth here, Randy. 
I have okay. seen it even in the last couple of weeks on the different platforms I work on, Rockslide and Instagram, that all the genetics have been shot out of this area. All right. For one reason or another, you know, and it's always fishing games fault. You know, they, they shot the genetics out. They killed all the big bucks. It's hopeless. They'll never come back. Um, and, 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 and I used to, you know, hear that stuff as a young man. I'm like, Oh, it's ruined forever. But I had an old wildlife biologist tell me his name was Ted Chu. If he's still out there. Hi, Ted. I learned a lot from you. And he said, well, I don't so much subscribe to that. He says, because the genetics are in the herd. They're not just in the bucks. They're in the does. And, you know, he didn't have any anything conclusive. He just always was kind of the outlier on that conversation. And eh, I don't really believe that. And, you know, if you get if you get a buck in that in that area, it's probably more related to nutrition that he's growing big antlers. And, you know, the genetics are are, are, are still there if you can get a buck old enough. Well, over the year, I mean, that was like 30 years ago. He told me that. Well, over the years, I've kind of watched that. Um, Colorado, for example, it got really bad in the late 90s down there. Uh, you know, we're talking units with very low buck to doe ratios, low age classes of bucks. And yet when we started to manage them again, all these units that supposedly the genetics had been shot out of, bam, they were back and 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 nearly as strong as ever. Colorado put out at least three 300-inch mule deer between roughly 2007 and 2018. And if you go back in the record books, you know, that's that's significant. Uh, and, and, you know, some people will say, oh, well, people didn't enter really big bucks back in the day. Oh, yeah, they did. Um, uh, and, and if they didn't enter them, then their grandson entered them, you know, 30 years later and to see three, 300 inch bucks come from different counties in Colorado, that just, just, just showed me that, well, those, maybe Ted was right. Those genetics were still there. We, we just, uh, needed a management program to express them. So, um, so that's what I wanted to talk to you a little bit, uh, about, about today, Randy, and you can refute any of that that you want to. In fact, I'd like you to, if you see an error, any of that, but, um, is, is it true that the genetics can be shot out of an area? No, uh, that's a great question, Robbie. And it's a good, fun conversation to have. Um, certainly had, a lot of the same conversations and read a lot of the same stuff you're talking about. Uh, if, if we back up a little bit, I think there's at least four things that are interacting with each other when we talk about uh, big antlers and, uh, you know, Boone and Crockett bucks. And, uh, you know, in no particular order, those four are the percent of the bucks that are getting harvested. So you mentioned, I think it's, and it was, it's a good point. You're looking at historical records because we've changed management so much and we've got you know certain units in each state that are sort of managed for quality and trophy opportunities. And so the percent harvest is way, way, way low, which allows the lucky hunters that draw those permits to be able to be extremely selective uh, and to harvest you know some of the bigger males that are there in that particular unit. And so you've got to think about that. Um, age uh, has a pretty big role to play, and we'll, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. And then nutrition and genetics. If I think about ranking those in terms of their importance, I probably am putting genetics as fourth, as having the smallest influence of those four. 
So there's certainly a role for it and it, it plays a part. Uh, but you've got to think about, okay, at least half, and some people will say more than half of the DNA in a, in a given buck is from mom. And, th and that's because the Y chromosome is smaller than the X chromosome. So you've got DNA coming from mom. The other thing that, that happens, the DNA and the, and the genetics of a particular buck are the same throughout its lifetime. So it doesn't matter, you know, if it's breeding as a two-year-old or a three-year-old, it's passing on the same genetics that it would be if it was breeding as a five, six, eight-year-old. Okay, pause. You just nailed another myth that I hear out there all the time, that a buck has to be big and have big antlers to pass on big antler genetics. And that is not true. You know, my, my son has blue eyes. It doesn't matter if he was born in 06 or, you know, 2016, I had blue eyes and he picked up that gene. Didn't matter what my age was. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Go ahead. Yeah. Now there is, uh, there's a, and people I'll look this up. I think you can get it uh, for free online. There is a nice piece of work that was put out uh, from, by Kevin Monteith that looks at Boone and Crockett scores for, all of North America's uh, species over long time scale, like 50, 60 years. And we do see some evidence of a decline in a lot of species, uh, but for most, it's a pretty modest decline. Like the average Boone and Crockett score of animals submitted, uh, like for mule deer has maybe changed by, decreased by a, a percentage or two. And so, that's potentially a, an, a result of selective harvest of mature males, but it's it's fractional and it's a small percentage. And that's why I'm ranking genetics as probably the fourth and least most important factor of those four we're talking about. The Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. It's the exclusive app of many of the Rockslide staff, including myself. Some of the features of the Onyx Hunt app are nationwide public and private land boundaries, topographic and 3D maps, track your route, location, and elevation profile, waypoints, lines, and area shapes, save maps for offline use, and create custom map layers. While many of the competitors have similar features, I find one of the biggest benefits in using the Onyx Hunt app is that my friends have it. Nothing more painful than trying to share a waypoint with someone who doesn't have the app. Another thing I've noticed with Onyx, it's pretty much glitch-free. Once you learn how to use the app, you will experience very few, if any, glitches in the app. We find on the Rockslide forum, the guys that are having glitches with Onyx or any of the apps, they just don't know how to use it. Once you learn how to use Onyx, it will be there for you. Some of the member benefits you get with being with Onyx are top rut draw odds. They just added that in 2023. Top rut provides some of the most comprehensive draw odds information in the industry. Onyx is also offering constant upgrades like track trim. 
when they released that last summer, it really cleaned up my app because I was the guy that would go back to camp with my app on and walk around camp for two hours. And then when I would notice my track, it had these big scribble lines in it. Now you can trim that off. They're constantly offering similar upgrades. So if you're ready to make the jump, head over to onxmaps.com, use the Rockcast promo code ROCKCAST, R-O-K-C-A-S-T, save yourself 20%. Okay, gotcha. And so, you know, a lot of times in research, we, we have to talk about, you know, the word significant. Is it significant? We, we, we can see things are occurring, but is it even significant? And, yeah. and so with, with, with the numbers that you just put out, and by the way, had, I had not seen, seen that by Mr. Monteith. Uh, that's very interesting. But still, 1% to 2%, is that even statistically significant? I would say no. Yeah, so it... And, and that's a good point. It is. It does reach the level of statistical significance. Um, yes. Okay. But but as as Kevin and Dr. Monteith would point out, you know how biologically meaningful is it? What should we do about it? Uh, and and then the other piece that they didn't have access to, uh, of no fault of their own, but they did not have the ability to know the age of all those animals. Right there, mm-hmm. they just went back through all the record books, looking at the scores. Some of them, obviously, people would have ages, but not the whole entire data set. So they're not that that analysis is unable to control for the effects of age, uh, which also has a pretty big role, an important role to play uh, in terms of antler size. Yeah, you bet. If if the sample size from, say, 1940 to 1970 was uh, five and a half year old bucks and then from 1971 through, you know, 2011, it was, uh, you know, even a even a year younger than that then you, the, the score may not be as high and that could offset right. that statistical uh, yeah. difference. But anyways, I don't want to, I don't want to belabor it, but I, I, I'm just saying that's kind of still lean into what I'm, what, what I'm, what I'm thinking here is that, and, and you too, you know, genetics while important, there's still a lot of other things going on. Yeah. And when, when we do see deer get, to an age where they're capable of growing their best antlers um the, the, you know the, the the genes are still there the genes are still there yeah. um yeah and we, and we would a lot of the data out there would point to nutrition as maybe having the biggest influence on antler size but it's 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 complex in the sense that it's nutrition of mom it's multi-generational uh, it's not just you know, you'll you'll hear people and read people say it's going to be a great antler year uh, this year. You know, maybe in in southern, you know, the southern portion of Mule Deer Range in Arizona and southern Utah, for example, this year people might be talking about, oh, yeah, this is going to be a great antler year, and that's definitely part of it. You know, growing conditions or you know, plant, you know, nutrition while they're growing the antlers matters a lot, but it's even more complex than that because it also depends on how healthy mom was the year that that buck was in utero. And there's a statistical and a significant relationship to where, you know, average antler size might vary by as much as eight inches, depending on how good the nutrition was and how good the spring was, the rain, et cetera, the year that that buck was in utero, born and nursed. And you can detect that in long-term data sets. Uh, and, you know, it matters, yes, this year, the year they're growing the antlers, but it also matters 
the year they were born and and there's like a carryover effect sometimes we label that a maternal effect so how healthy mom was when you were born can influence your antler size all throughout your life yeah and 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 that right there that just like that, that, that's why it's so hard to just look at one event like what's going on this year with the winter kill right and that's where yeah. i you know where i try to get my thinking like yeah okay we got to go through this in fact we go through it every five to ten years somewhere um at least right. i mean you get into the wyoming range of some of those man it's like every three years they, they'll have significant winter kill but you know if i if if, if you can kind of stand back and look at it all there's it, it's more than just one event and and those things that you just brought up about the the health of the mother when the uh Fawn is in the in in her um whatever you call that in, in utero in utero. Um yeah, I don't want to get right. out of my lane here. I'm not very good with big words. Um no, you're good. Uh the the you know that to me that's getting back to not just the management, that 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 that's the habitat, that's the precipitation cycles, that's all of those things together uh that are that are gonna impact that doe's health, correct? Yeah, and it's it's really interesting to think about uh but yes definitely goes back to habitat um have you ever heard some people will chase fires have you ever heard people talk about that like if there's yes really really good productive maybe high elevation burns mm -hmm. it, maybe you start thinking four and five years ahead and those areas are likely to to be on the upswing in terms of population growth but also producing big antlers, you know, three, four, five years after those fires because of the nutrition uh, input and the flush of of good nutrition available to mule deer. Uh, so it, it can be, and, and it can even be more complex than that, Robbie, because uh, there's data out there that shows it it's multi generational. So if you can stack a bunch of good years together either you know whether that's climatically good years or it's a change in habitat from a, a very productive and good fire or habitat treatment type work if you can get a few generations of really healthy moms uh, then at the end of those generations they will be throwing big fawns with big antlers mm -hmm. that turn into big bucks and so i think you know you could look back through the record books and there would be spurts and multiple years in a row where there's giant bucks coming out of particular places in the west and that's going to be a combination of having age structure in the population but also maybe what's gone on climatically with weather patterns and on the ground with habitat that's directly influencing nutrition of not only the bucks but their mothers and grandmothers yeah. And to me, that's why investing in habitat to me is the long game. That's to me, that's the money best spent. And and I'm comparing that to, you know, short-term management, you know, cutting back doe tags like we are in the West right now, which I agree with. We just had an epic winter. We should cut back on doe tags um, or, you know, heavy, heavy predator control, you know, um, oh, all the other things we do to grow mule deer, you know, those, those can, to use your word, uh, make spurts of 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 yeah. good years here and there 
But long term, if we're investing in the habitat, you know, you know, owning the habitat in the public trust is is what I mean by that. And 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 studying migration corridors to make sure we save this this one place right here, because this is this is setting these deer up for eons to continue where if it goes away, they got nothing. Um, you know, those things to me is where the real investment is it, it comes back. It doesn't mean I'm going to get a big buck next year. That's why a lot of hunters aren't interested in it. But to me, that's what we've got to be doing long term to uh, to have a prolific mule deer herds. Whether we're talking, you know, there's a lot. I talk big bucks on this podcast, but to to me, big bucks are kind of the final product of a deer herd doing what it's supposed to be doing. You know, putting fawns on the ground, healthy mothers. You know, in balance with the ecosystem, not way over carrying capacity. You know, all of those things. Yeah, that that then I get big bucks. That's that that that's where I come from on this. But um, you know whether you're interested in big bucks or not you know conserving mule deer is 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 a, to me and, and let's, let's talk about this a little bit randy a function of conserving their habitat uh, i 100 agree with you and that the uh, availability of quality habitat sort of trumps many of the other things we do now predation can be important uh, in places and you know we don't want to minimize that but you've long term you can't ignore habitat you've got to manage it uh and even you know, one of the interesting things that's come out of the last decade or so of research and monitoring data is that it might be and looks likely that the quality of summer habitat is perhaps more important than the quality of winter range yeah. um we've done a lot of treatment around the west on winter ranges that seem you know that's that's where the animals a lot of times will die especially in a winter like this Mm-hmm. So in some sense, it makes, you know, you look at it and you say, well, they're dying on winter range and they're dying during the winter. But if you back up and look at how healthy they were going into a particular winter, that probably dictates more so whether they make it through the winter than the quality of the winter range. And so there's been a little bit of a paradigm shift with all this new, these new data that have come out across the West with these GPS collar studies and measurements of body fat that is changing how we think about it and putting a lot more emphasis on the importance and the quality of summer range. And so you'll see that kind of shift and play out with the land management agencies over the next decade as we uncover and understand more about what drives these populations. But it looks like health of the animals going into winter is probably a bigger driver than the quality of winter range. And so maybe we ought to be treating and working and improving and restoring more summer range than we do currently yes yep yep something we weren't even talking about 10 years ago it was all all winter range or die you know and so so with mm-hmm. what you said you know that's what i've learned we, we either kill them fast with a hard winter or we kill them slow with poor habitat um and 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 since you can't really do anything about about the winters you know the habitat it, 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 you know you mentioned high yeah. elevation fires those can make a a big difference because they improve the habitat it's a, it's almost like a free gift from god no charge um here right. you go here's here's improved habitat and it, and it doesn't work everywhere there's a big article on rock slide about you know quality of burns uh, written by jim carr that you know it, it still varies but it's, it's something to look at and you know by and large if there's a fire uh you know it's probably going to improve the habitat and and you'll probably get uh, a concurrent response from from the deer that live in that area. Um, so, Randy, before we get back onto the to the n- nutrition and genetics, there was just just something that I thought about as you were talking. So, in these 
areas with with poor habitat and let's just specifically talk about you know the east east side of the wasatches this year um is elk are elk having an effect a negative effect on that habitat because i know some of these areas where we're seeing this high winter kill that those elk herds are over objective is that correct yeah that's yes uh there there is some smoke there on that topic that's a complex issue uh deer elk competition uh it's it's multifaceted we did a we did a project a few years ago on the book cliffs on the colorado border where we were looking at you know one of the ideas at that time was that elk are giving birth to their calves typically in may and so they're beating mule deer uh to maybe the best places to raise their offspring by about a month deer giving birth in june so maybe they are soaking up and taking and using the best calf and fawn rearing habitat and then that pushes deer maybe into more fringe habitats while they're you know during the summer while they're raising their young you know that was one popular idea a number of years ago we couldn't find evidence of that now there's a piece of research from idaho that shows you know speaking to elk deer competitions specifically in the winter that shows that it that it can occur and especially in a winter like this mm-hmm. it, it it possibly could um what you're referencing so here's just a specific example from utah uh, that that has been brought up uh, this year in particular you know you've got the cash mule deer herd and we, we talked a little bit about you know fawn survival is low this year all the radio collared fawns have died but adult female survival is still hanging tough we're running i think uh and pull the number right here at the current moment as of yesterday we're running 76 percent survival of adult does adult females from december one mm-hmm. so hanging in there not not a great number certainly going to end up below average but uh unlikely to really get low and plumb the depths of you know 20 and 30 type percent uh, rates that we're seeing on some other units already mm-hmm. so that's one example and just to the south of it the morgan south rich a unit um, where elk are over objective compared to the cache. Elk on the cache are at or below objective. On the Morgan South Rich, you're talking right now, as of today, 23% adult survival on uh, you know mule deer. Mm-hmm. So a pretty big difference. You know, maybe their winter has been. You know, maybe someone could argue it's been a little harder on the Morgan South Rich, or maybe there's less winter range. But one of the things that is different is there are more elk relative to objective and and those units in that area is over objective. It's tough to tease all that out apart. One thing we have noticed as we've captured mule deer in December in those units that 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 area is generally body fat measurements are generally a percentage or two lower than we would expect based on the latitude. So you'd expect those animals just below the cash unit to be similar in body fat to the cash, mm-hmm. but they end up being, you know, sometimes as much as 2% body fat lower coming into winter. And mm-hmm. so exactly what's causing that? Don't know, but there is, there is uh, maybe some correlation with uh, high elk numbers. 
Yeah, and I'd like to see you know more research dedicated to that because it's still kind of at the myth level in the hunting world, and I'm probably subscribing to some of it myself. Uh, yeah. But you know, for 30 years we've talked about you know more elk, less deer, and and it's been hard to establish a cause and effect. You know, is it the, is is yeah. is are the elk just responding to the to the change in in habitats and human encroachment and things like that? Are they adapting better, so therefore there's more elk? And, and mule deer are not adapting as well, so therefore there's less. Or is it elk are actually kicking the mule deer out of traditional ranges like what we, maybe we thought with 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 fawn ha- high quality fawn habitat? You know, pushing the mule deer out into the to the flats where they have to raise their fawn on cheat grass and things like that. Um, it, it, are elk uh, dominating? Uh, typical mule deer winter range, uh, critical mule deer winter range at a rate now where it's pushing the deer off. That's where I'd like to see the research going because if, if that's the case, and I, you know, I, I, even though I'm not an elk hunter, um, you know, um, I, I'll hunt more elk. I, and if that's, if that's what it takes, I'll hunt more cow elk. Uh, um, right. and, and, and because the, if they're out of balance, I mean, that's what wildlife management is all about. You know, if, if something's out of balance, then, then, then we, we should fix it. And, you know, yeah. especially if it's, you know, if it's socially accept- acceptable, let's, let's fix it. You know, if hunters want to hunt elk, let's do it. Um, just last year, I mean, I, I'm a pilot and I took a flight down, uh, in that triple point that we're talking about. And, um, it, this was in kind of mid July and, you know, I was flying really high and I could see a dust cloud down, down below me and it almost kind of looked like a cattle drive and, I was watching it for a second as I went by and I'm like, you know, what, what is that? Are they, they, they pushing cows around out here in the sagebrush? And this was kind of a, you know, sagebrush step country, Aspen, things like that. And man, I got looking, Randy, it was the biggest herd of elk I have ever seen in my life. And, uh, you know, it was still when the, when the cows are, are with the fawns or there was hardly any bulls in the herd. And I'm not exaggerating 15 to 20 elk wide as far out as I could see, the sun was just coming up. I, maybe I could see out of, you know, at least a mile and, you know, you couldn't really see individual elk, but you could see that dust cloud coming up. I mean, it was like the Serengeti in, in, in Africa. It was just the most amazing number of animals that, that, that I've ever seen. And, and, you know, some would say that's a good thing. Uh, you know, they're, they're in, they're in traditional mule deer habitat where, you know, maybe 50 years ago, it would have been even hard to find an elk. And yeah. it was it was just amazing, and I've seen that in in various places. That was the the most I've ever seen. But you know, I've seen that in the Wyoming range. I've seen that in, in certain places in Southeast Idaho where elk they're just killing it. They are doing so well, and uh, you know, t- t- twin calves and every every uh, mature uh, cow has a calf. You know, all the habitat where the elk should be, there are elk. Um, so I'm kind of getting off on a tangent here, but. But I, I would like to, that to really be studied and and come up with some, some some conclusions on this, and you know maybe even have some some pilot projects in areas of where hey let's let let's see if if this is a good area to increase elk harvest and how do the deer respond? Because maybe there's nothing to it. Maybe the elk are just what I said are just adapting better than the deer. Yeah, and that's the million dollar question. What you're talking about right there, it does seem like a lot of the habitat change that we're seeing. Uh, you know, converting, we're losing some shrublands, converting to grasslands that in theory should probably favor elk over deer in some situations. Mm-hmm. And, and so that million dollar question that you're talking about is, is it simply elk responding 
to the landscapes that are changing that favor them? Or is there, and then deer are responding negatively to those same changes, or is there some direct connection between mule deer and elk? And that's a really complex, multifaceted, uh, sort of really difficult question to get at. Uh, what I think we would need, and we, you know, there's been conversations about this, is we would need almost to set up a series of units, management units, and strategically and drastically reduce the number of elk, like maybe cut an elk population in half on one particular unit and see how the deer responded in that unit relative to an adjacent or some, you know, similar management unit where elk population was left uh, as it was. Um, and that, you, know, you got to get all that stuff through the public process. Anyway, anyways, that's, that to me would be the gold standard to answer that question, you know, multiple years, multiple places or units where you drastically reduced elk to then look at and observe what happens with mule deer and whether they respond positively to that reduction. Uh, but that's, you know, that's a long-term challenging, expensive, expensive endeavor. Uh, and that the whole idea of competition between those two species, it's multifaceted. It could be competition during just a season or a part of the year. Uh, it could be, you know, you know, there's lots of diet studies that show a lot of times they don't overlap. But sometimes they do. Uh, there's, have you heard the idea of, uh, what is, uh, almost like indirect competition and what's called the, the label in the scientific community is apparent competition. So it looks like they're competing, but the idea here would be, okay, if you have an abundant elk population with lots of calf elk in it, that maybe you can carry and support a higher population of mountain lions, mm -hmm. but then those mountain lions will preferentially, especially the females and the younger animals will preferentially take deer every chance they get. But if they can't find any deer, they can subsist at higher densities by eating elk. Uh, but then they're sort of maybe suppressing. So it looks like elk and deer are competing, but really it's sort of mediated and facilitated by an interaction with one of their predators yeah so anyways it's a that's the kind of thing that could keep somebody like me busy for the rest of my career three decades more i understand um, and i just hope um you know as 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 as, as hunters and as, as wildlife managers and everything that we don't just get stuck in these um it's almost like a labyrinth, you know, like, which way do you go? What do you do? And, uh, and, and that's why I like to have these conversations with people like you is, you know, well, let, let's, let's do something. Let's do something. Let's, let, let, let's, let's study habitat. Let's study elk. Let's, let's, let's do something because you can get a uh, paralysis of analysis. And you just gave some, some really good examples of that right there. Like, yeah, it could be mountain lions coming in through the back door and, 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 and suppressing deer herds because they've got more, more elk available. I mean, all that stuff, but, uh, but anyways, pack your lunch, Randy. That's what we're hoping uh, guys like you'll be out there doing and answering some of those questions over the next decade, because I know one thing. There are way more elk now than there were 
30 years ago in certain areas, not everywhere, in certain areas. And it sure seems like that the the, the, the mule deer are struggling in those areas too. So um, uh, thanks for diving into that with me. Um, kind, of, kind of back onto our topic of the nutrition versus genetics. So we talked about the genetics and, um, you know, bucks being able to, to pass those genes on no matter what uh, age that buck is, whether he's breeding as a one and a half year old or a seven and a half year old, he's passing those same genes on. We talked a little bit about the mother's health, how even if the, the 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 buck in her womb has those genes for big antlers, if she's not in great shape, uh, whether it's the habitat or competition on elk or whatever it is, um, he he may never become a big buck by the standards that we're applying today, which is which is Boone and Crockett. And there's other ways to measure big bucks, but we're we're just going to use that for today's argument. Um, um, but you mentioned you had you had kind of a list of four things and you put you put genetics at the bottom um let's work our way up from that what 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 do you put in the number three slot for growing big bucks in this whole nutrition nutrition versus genetics sphere that we're talking about yeah so for me i would put genetics as fourth has an influence but I think that influence is relatively small compared to the other three factors. And those other three factors would be the age of those harvested animals. Uh, once you, you know, you mentioned uh, submitting teeth, you know, and getting the age back on those animals and that they can be really, really big as early as three and four. Uh, we've cut teeth here for a lot of years. And if anybody wants to, send teeth in from animals that you harvest we're, we're happy to do that and and can get you those ages for either minimal cost or even free uh, but i i can't tell you robbie how many times there has been some giant buck that will somebody will you know harvest and send in a tooth and these are the big ones you know it'll be a little note that'll say 220 or 230 or Mm-hmm. You know, the animals that have the, the names, the named animals. Yeah. And they'll come in and, and I'll think to myself, wow, I wonder how old that is. And I can't tell you how many times we've cut those teeth, counted those growth rings, and they're come back four or five. <laughs> and you think, wow. And these are the giant ones. Uh, and, you know, there'll be some that are older. Sure. But if they're going to be big, they get big at, Four and five is what we typically see and kind of mat, mat, uh, matches up with what you were saying. Um, there's certainly some antler characteristics that would change a little bit. You know, they get a little more mass. Maybe they grow a few extras or stickers as they age. But in general, they're going to reach their potential for antler growth by five, essentially. Uh, and and so that's definitely a component uh, and one that we don't always think about. Um so that matters, but I, it matters like just to an extent, right? It matters, you know, you're not going to have a giant two-year-old typically. And so you've got to have age class, four or five, six-year-olds in the population. Uh, and, but then once you're there, whether there's eight-year-olds or four and five-year-olds, I don't think that matters anymore in terms of producing big antlers. Uh, you've got to hit a minimum age and then they are sort of what they are. If they're going to be big, they're big young. 
Yes. And uh, that's been my experience too. Uh, I started off just aging my own bucks and um, I've aged every big buck I've ever shot, you know, pushing 30 bucks here. And I've only ever, uh, only ever one of them did I not age. And that's because the neighbor got the jawbone off of my workbench uh, the neighbor's dog, excuse me, not the neighbor. <laughs> the neighbor's yeah. dog got, got a hold of the jawbone off my workbench before I could send it in. And, uh, and he ate it. He ate the whole thing. And yes, I was out there with a little shovel poking dog turds because I wanted those teeth back so bad um, yeah. uh, because it was it was a pretty unique buck, about a 180 buck. And you just could not tell by his body like he looked really healthy, but he had some had some uh, his feet were just whopper feet. And I thought, man, this is this could be a seven or eight year old deer, deer, you know, all the games you play when you're when you're aging them. And, and by the way, I'm always wrong when it comes back. I never got to age that deer um, because of that dog. But the rest of my deer out of the rest of them that I've submitted, the the the, the, the two biggest one, a, a 224 uh, uh, gross buck and a 234 gross buck, both of them five years old. And I've got bucks all the way to nine years old. And, you know, they're pretty big too. But as far as just massive big deer, it, it was at the five-year-old mark. And, and you know, I know that some states, I think Utah does this with their elk, they manage for an age class. And yeah. what some of this stuff has taught me in my very small sample size, because even though I've lab aged a few, pr probably three or 400 uh, deer, including the ones I've done for other hunters, it's, it, you know, it's still relatively small sample size. I, I kind of learned that, man, you don't really have to manage for seven or eight year old deer. If you want big antlers, if you can get them to five, four or five years old, you know, that's, yeah. that, that, that's going to be a pretty good spot. And yeah, I know there's guys out there probably pounding on the radio right now going, no, 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 you know, seven or eight year old bucks are bust. And, and I get it. You know, I like, I like those big junky looking heavy based, you know, old face looking Roman nosed deer. I, I get it. But as we talked about earlier in the podcast, you, a lot of things have to go right. And you right now in this day and age, just restrictive management. That's right. I mean, you have to go to such a low license number, such a low participation level to get very right. many bucks on the landscape like that. To me, it's. I'll just say it. I, I just don't want to go down that route. It's just, it's too restrictive. Um, but, but, but with what agreeing with what you said, Randy is just that age, that four to five years old. It, it's amazing. Uh, Travis, our common friend, Travis Hobbs, uh, uh, we aged a buck for him in 2017, which was a great habitat year for the year that for, for where he took it. It was a, after a very hard winter, uh, to yeah. 16, 17 winter, but the, you know, one of those high elevation places that the habitat just comes back, comes back strong, you know, long leaders on the uh, bitter brush, all, all the good things are happening. And this buck scored 220 as a three and a half year old deer. And uh, yeah. so even at, at that age, he was, he was expressing that. And yeah. Would love to have seen him when he was five, would love to have seen him when he was seven, but with all these other things that affect antler growth, you know, injuries and, and, and drought and all those other things there, there, we can't say that he would have been any bigger for sure. Yeah. Right. And, and Oh, if you look just, you know, west wide, um, sort of average antler size, you know, average Boone and Crockett score for animals that are five and a half or older is generally around 160. Uh, and so for every, you know, really big one that scores 230, there's others that are in that age class that are, you know, in 140, 150 type uh, Boone and Crockett score bucks. And that's, those are the ones that my friends and I and 
we kill. <laughs> so we, I could, <laughs> I could point to, I could show you pictures of buck after buck after buck, mature four point deer, you know, big bodied animals that are seven, eight, mm-hmm. you know, even nine that are scoring, you know, like 140, 150. Uh, you know, so the nice little four points, but they're not, not the giants that people want to harvest and put on their walls. And so age is a factor for sure. But I think it's important early to get to that four and a half, five and a half year old age class. And then it's not nearly as important as other things. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was, that's a very interesting and something I just learned, you know, probably just in the last decade. Well, it came from a lot of this aging that we were doing is that, that it's the whole genetic thing is, is just because a buck gets that age and and gets uh you know maybe good nutrition and everything he's still an individual and i remember being in like sixth grade and we had a dude i think his name was steven he was like six foot two this dude was a giant you know and the rest of us you know we're we're all just barely breaking into the five foot range you know running around and you know this this dude was a giant and um and 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 then on the other end of it you know there was there was there was people that were you know really small and 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 that's typically you know expressed throughout their whole life you know he's probably still a giant and uh and it's the same with deer i've I've seen that with deer as well and 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 in the few times i've been able to follow bucks from year to year that i think oh man he's going to be great and then the next year Mm, man, I, I can still recognize him, man, maybe, maybe he's a little tiny bit heavier, but he's never going to be great. He just doesn't have those genetics to do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, I agree 100%. It's been interesting. Most of the collaring effort in most states is focused on, you know, females and fawns, uh, you know, the two components that drive, you know, populations. But every once in a while, there'll be some project, maybe a migration project that where you, you call her a few bucks. Utah's done a little bit of that on some units, and it's you know interesting to monitor the same known individual with the collar for multiple years if they survive the hunting season. And you've got, you know, a lot of individuals that are doing just what you're talking about, where they just are sort of at their potential as as a four or five year old and they're not going to get much bigger. Mm-hmm. There's others that might blow up one year. Uh, and then but there's others that are regressing and you know falling off a cliff mm-hmm. uh one year i've got a, uh, a biologist friend in the northeastern part of the state who who sent me photos and you wouldn't even know it's the same deer probably mm-hmm. it regressed so much from one year to the next uh, but looking at its antlers you just wouldn't you know nobody would even be able to know if it didn't have a collar that that was the same animal one wow. year older way different antler configuration and maybe that one was sick or injured or or mm-hmm. whatever but mm-hmm. Uh, all that stuff is going on, and I think if if they're going to be big, they will express that and get big uh, relatively young, like four and a half. Gotcha, gotcha. Interesting. Um, okay, so for your for your top four list, we got genetics at the bottom. Age number three. What's number two? Uh, to me, it would be just the percent harvest rate. You know, if you're lucky enough to draw a permit on on a unit that's managed for very restrictive opportunity, high quality, you're going to have your pick of the litter, so to speak, and you're going to be able to, to, to pick and choose and look over a lot of bucks, harvest the, the, you know, the top end. You think like in Utah, you think about Antelope Island. Uh, I think we allow two hunters to hunt mule deer on Antelope Island that produce giant bucks. 
but those two hunters are able to essentially pick from a population of, you know, at one time there was maybe 800 mule deer on the island. So, you know, you've got several hundred bucks and they're able to just pick and choose out of those several hundred, the, the biggest antlers. And so percent harvest rate is a big factor in my opinion. Uh, and one that's been highly variable across time. Looking back decades, we were probably harvesting a very high percentage of bucks in the, you know, in the early years. Now we've got units where we still do that, but there's other management units where the, the harvest is restricted and we're in sort of a limited entry or draw system. And so that to me is another big factor. Okay. So when we're talking about, um, it, you know, a buck being able to get big, you know, we talked about genetics, number four, age, number three. So for number two, you're, you're basically talking how the herd is managed, how restrictive or how liberal it's it's managed, particularly concerning bucks, correct? Yeah. And it's not so much that you're changing it, it's you're you're changing how big the ones that are harvested are. You're not necessarily changing the potential of that herd unit. It, it's simply if you're only going to harvest two animals out of several hundred bucks, those two are probably going to be some of the the two biggest. I and see so what you it, mean. So yeah, I think I see what you mean. So you're talking more of the ability to select the oldest yes. biggest bucks. Yeah. And oh. so that's one challenge. That's one challenge we have now if we're going to compare to historical records is, you know, are, are certain areas producing bigger bucks because of nutrition or genetics or age? Or is it simply that our management strategy strategy is so restrictive that we have a few people lucky enough to draw those permits that are able to pick and choose and select and harvest the biggest from that? population. Okay. I see what you mean. I'm glad you clarified on that. I was kind of missing your point there. My my friend, Jason Carter, um, Epic Outdoors, he talks about that, that sometimes that's the problem with a draw unit uh, It is it attracts the, the best, most selective hunters. And then let's just say it, if it's in Utah, they're going to have you know, their cousins, their aunts, the guy that delivers the mail, maybe even the guy that brings the Amazon deliveries. Um, you know, they're going to the barber. He'll probably come and help, too. There'll be a lot of people out there hunting one tag. And so your ability to select is 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 there where, you know, 30 years ago it wasn't. We didn't have we we, we didn't have this, the selective management that we have going on now, unit by unit in some places, um, some places it hasn't changed. But we also didn't have, you know, a big percentage of people group hunting. Uh, right. And 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 so that's what you're saying is, you know, number two is 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 your ability to to select the to be selective. Right. Yeah. And even maybe you bring up a good example. Maybe it's not only just to be selective, but it's an improved ability to find the top end with all the help that you've got with all the technology. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm doing, I'm you know, I'm, I'm a better hunter because of technology than my predecessors of 30 years ago. Although they were, they were all things being equal. They were a better hunter than me. If we both got just handed a 30, 30 and, uh, and we'll close and headed out in the woods, you know, technology definitely <laughs> off offsets that. Um, you Open know, I'm, I'm, lever action. <laughs> yep, exactly. 
I mean, I've got trail cameras on winter range that are that are that are sending me photos um, uh, daily, and I'm able to see kind of when are the deer migrating. In fact, by the way, it's really cool with this last two warm ups that we had last Monday and Tuesday, and then a little bit Sunday and Monday. Today's Tuesday, by the way. So I, I've seen the deer start to pull off the winter range in, in just you know real small areas. I mean, I don't, I don't have that big of a sample size, but 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 they are starting to move. And you know, this was stuff you know, 30 years ago, you just couldn't do. And, and, and it all goes into making us better hunters. I'm, I'm, I'm fully aware of that. And, and that's one reason I'm, you know, when anytime we're talking about restricting technology, even though I use the heck out of it, I'm, I'm game. You know, if it's, if it, if it can Im improve the number of, of bucks on the landscape and improve the deer herd. Yeah, definitely. Let, let's, let's, let's have those conversations. But before we go down that rabbit hole, so, uh, we, we got a percent harvest rate. You gave the antelope Island example. Um, and, and you know, that's kind of extreme. There's only two hunters there. Um, can, can we apply that to, you know, other maybe run of the mill units in Utah? I'm just saying Utah, cause you're there. You can pick on Idaho if you want, but, um, where maybe there's, you know, a, can we see this same thing you're talking about when we have something with a, a unit with, say, 300 tags or a thousand tags? Is 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 their ability to select better now than it was? Is that having a play on 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 the size of bucks? Uh, so I, yeah, definitely, I think it can. So like in Utah, we manage most of our units, uh, management units for a, a postseason buck doe ratio. Mm -hmm, right. So biologists are out after the hunts are over. They're classifying deer, and a lot of the general season units would be managed for somewhere between 15 and 20 uh, bucks per hundred does. And then there would be some limited entry areas that would be anywhere from 25 to 35 bucks per hundred does, or even the the some of the premium top end trophy quality units. Uh, where you would be even, you know, more closer, closer to 40 or 50 bucks per hundred does. So if you're in, if you're lucky enough to draw those permits, you, there's just more bucks on the landscape and your ability to pick and choose is improved. There's more options. Mm -hmm. right. I think that, that results in, in part, in the harvest of larger antlered animals. Gotcha. So kind of kind of answered it myself as I proposed the question. I'm I'm with you. Uh, the 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 select selectability is improved. Uh, it doesn't matter what the buck to doe ratio is. If you hunt longer, hunt harder, which a lot of people do, then you're 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 going to be able to select older age class animals. Obviously. Yeah, um, and there's downsides. I mean that. I mean that. I'm with you that we got to have some units like this uh, scattered around the West. But there are some downsides, and those downsides would be some of the stuff we've already talked about, where it's just really hard to draw a permit. Somebody might take, you know, you need to either get super lucky in a lottery system, or you've got to wait in line for 20, even 30 years. So that would be one downside. But there's also, and we don't often talk about this, but there's also a downside, and it, and it plays into the nutrition a little bit. There's a downside to managing at really high buck doe ratios in terms of farm production. Talk so, about it. Yeah. And and a lot of people will point to and talk about, you know, we need a certain number of bucks to make sure that all of the females are bred on their first estrus cycle. And that's, that, that it is doesn't true. take very many. No, like single digits. If you're looking at a buck doe ratio, eight to 100 is is enough kind yep. of a number. They're horny. So, yeah, they, they find a way. <laughs> uh, and so you've got, 
you know, that is true on the low end. You, you can't have too few, but that low end is really low. But what's more common is if, if we're going to manage for buck-doe ratios in the 20 to 100 or 30 to 100 or 40, 50 to 100, we should expect to see reductions in production measured as fawns per 100 does. And so Colorado is a good example of that. There's a couple pieces of literature from Colorado that showed as they became more restrictive in their permitting and have managed for some older age class bucks and higher buck doe ratios, they see and have seen corresponding decreases in productivity. And so for every sort of uh, one buck per hundred doe increase, you're, you're losing maybe two fawns per hundred does in some of those ranges of buck doe ratio. So there's a trade-off there in that you're gonna have a little bit less productive of a herd uh, and that to me is just sort of a cost of trying to grow lots of bucks, allow people to be really selective so that they can harvest large antlered males. Just one of the costs out there. Glad you bring that up. I've, I've heard that teased out just a little bit um, over the years. Um, and what's causing that reduction in the, in, in the fawn to doe ratio by having a high buck to doe ratio? Yeah, the best, the best thoughts out there would be that it is linked to nutrition and carrying capacity, number of mouths on the landscape. If you've got uh, a high buck doe ratio, they're probably eating some of the same food, even though they might segregate in the summer and the bucks will be okay. where they're going to be. They're, they're, throughout the course of the year, they're going to be eating, at least in some places, the same food, making less food uh, and nutrition available to those females which would then translate into maybe smaller birth weights for their fawns, lower twinning rates. Uh, smaller birth weights are correlated with reduced survival of the fawns. And so by the time you catch them or count them in a postseason classification, you end up seeing you know, a few fawns less per 100 does in an area with high buck doe ratio than you would in a similar area with a lower buck doe ratio. Yeah, and it's hard to wrap our minds around it in this day and age, but you actually can have too many bucks. And, uh, you know, having, having hunted big bucks for 30, 40 years in different units that have had uh, differing buck-to-doe ratios, I've kind of found that if if you can get me to a unit that has 20 bucks per 100 does um, and there's not uh, a tons of access, which they're probably not going to be if it has 20 bucks per 100 does uh, by default, um, it, it, then I can usually find older age class bucks that I'm happy with. I can find bucks in that four to six year old range. It takes some work. They're not everywhere by any means. But then when I've been to units where there's 40 bucks per 100 does, oh yeah, it's like going to the candy store with a free pass, but I never get to go back is the problem. I get one one shot at it uh, you know, through the draw system and then point creep takes over. Um, and, and in some of these, cause I've hunted Colorado a lot and I've, and I've bought landowner tags in Colorado and, or they just price you out of the market on landowner tags, landowner tags that they couldn't give away in 2005 are worth $20,000 now. And so that, to me, that 40 bucks per hundred does, that's meaningless. Whoop-de-doo, who, who cares? You know, 50 guys a year get to go hunt it or, you know, 80 guys a year or 20, you know, what, what whatever. I mean, you could say that about the Arizona strip too. And I'm not, against the way they're managing those units i'm just i'm just comparing and contrasting that yeah it's it's great to know they're out there i'm not going to get to go but you know show me units that's got 20 to 30 bucks per hundred does and i can usually find what i'm looking for yeah and it's painful to say i mean you know for people that like myself and 
you know, we want to see lots of bucks and we want to harvest big, big mature animals, but there is a trade-off associated with carrying that many bucks in a population. And one of those trade-offs is reduced access and opportunity, but another uh, biological trade-off would be reduced productivity. I often smile just a little bit, like here in Utah, we oh, will complain bitterly about poor production uh, on a lot of our limited entry units. And some of that poor production is likely a result of how exactly we're managing those units to have a high buck dough ratio. So anyways, just something to think about. Yeah. Well, do you remember just off the top of your head, what was the highest buck to dough ratio we saw on the Henry's when it was, you know, being, being managed intensively, you know, I'm thinking two, 2006 oh, through 10, somewhere in there. Do you remember? Yeah, really restrictive. We could look that up on Utah's webpage, but I'm I'm sure you were in the fifty to a hundred range. Or That's what I was thinking. That's yeah. what I was thinking. And and you know, I know there's guys out there with their heart broke that the Henry's is not doing what it used to do, and you know they can blame it on the increased in permits. Some of this came through through manage the management hunts. And uh, do they have a cactus and, buck hunt on there? I can't remember. Uh, I, don't, I don't think they have one there. They have one on the Ponsagon, but the Henry's is a good example of what we're talking about in that uh, you've got a whole multitude of these four factors working in favor of producing large antlers down there. And what is not often mentioned there, yes, we have very restrictive harvest. We're managing to an age class above four. So we're, we have age structure in the population, reduced harvest. Uh, but the thing that that I don't know that we give enough credence to on the Henry Mountains is the fires that happened down there in, I want to say, the early 2000s. Yeah. And I, I can remember being on the Henry Mountains maybe just a year or two post-fire. Robbie, I had to stop my truck, put it in park, get out, and my jaw was on the ground with how well – the shrub community and especially Cliff Rose was coming back just a year or two after the fire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was jaw dropping. I had never seen such drastic uh, post-fire recovery from, you know, some of the best plants for mule deer. And so I think a lot of what we see now in the Henry's is that the effects of that fire, which, which the fire was big, uh, the plants responded amazingly well. We had good precipitation in the years after that fire. Yep. So we in, we had a big nutrition flush that went through on that mountain and through those mule deer. And I think that is now uh, kind of running its course. So even though we've got the age structure, we've got reduced harvest, we've got the same genetics, you would think, uh, for the most part. Yeah, we can't say. Uh, yeah, right. That we are seeing maybe declines in that top end, and that I think, in my opinion, is uh, the, the nutritional sort of carrying capacity and the nutritional makeup of that mountain has declined, and maybe now we're a few generations into having less healthy does, and so they're throwing fawns that don't produce as big antlers as mature bucks. Wow. I'm glad you bring that up because you're right. I talk to guys probably monthly about the Henry's and that, that is 
I don't, I think you're the first person that ever said it. I was very well aware of those fires that occurred in the early 2000s and then the great weather patterns, you know, ra- rainy springs that we had. And I can't remember the years, 03 through 06, something like that. We had, you know, good moisture come through at least some of those years. And then, you know, you look at th- those dates, I said, 2006 to 2010, you know, the Henry's were rocking it from, from, from 210 inch net typical Boone and Crockett to 240 uh, net Boone and Crockett bucks. I mean, it was the place to go. And from the guys I've talked to that, that you, you don't really look for those bucks down there anymore. You know, they might, might be one or two around, but it's not like it was. And yeah. uh, yet, you know, it, it, I know there's more tags on the Henry's than there used to be, but, but they've been segmented into these, uh, the, the, the management hunt. Um, I, I really don't have the numbers in front of me. I'm a little bit of bro science here, just talking to people, but um, you know, they're, 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 Oh, and your number, your number two thing, your percent harvest people know when they have that tag in their hand now even more so than they had it in 2005 that you know hey i better get all my buddies up here and uh we're going to make an event out of this and find the best buck on the mountain that that's occurring almost with everybody now uh and 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 sure enough you're talking to the guides and the, the the guys that hunt down there that yeah you just don't see those giant bucks like you used to yeah and i and i think it's by and large a function of nutrition and even multi-generational and so you know you you talk about multiple years of really good nutrition after a fire with with favorable rains and precipitation and you're stacking fat does on top of fat does year over year and there's a big pulse of really healthy ponds that are born in a few years and then those end up you know turning into those 210 typicals and those 240 non-typicals that you saw in those 2006 to 10 range. Yeah, just un- unreal. Um, okay, so we've got, got we're getting through your top four list here. I'm doing my Casey Kasem imitation here. You know, at number four is genetics. At number three is age. At number two is percent harvest rate. Number one, according to Randy Larson, BYU professor, what is your number one predictor of an area producing a big buck to me it's nutrition robbie um you've got to have nutrition and it's multi-generational it's complex it's the effect of mom's health and nutrition on her offspring so it lasts multiple years and to me that's it that's number one and that's what we should be managing for healthy animals healthy herds, even if that means maybe reduced population sizes in some areas. That way we've got animals that are going to survive, you know, winters like we've got this year, but they're also going to produce fawns that have large antlers, like you're talking about the end product of sort of healthy and productive management strategies. Yep. That's where I see them. When When the habitat is functioning as it should, um, all of the things being equal, you can't have over harvest. You can't have a bunch of roads and easy access. Um, but when it's functioning as it should, that's when I start seeing uh, big bucks in number uh, show up. Um, so with nutrition being number one, uh, nutrition is going to be related to precipitation. Obviously, we can't do a lot about that. Um, but it's going to be closely tied to to the condition of the habitat. Correct. We've talked about that throughout the podcast. Yeah. What what else is driving nutrition besides habitat and precipitation? Yeah, so you would have, and and the habitat piece would be 
complicated, right? Because right. mule deer are going to eat multiple different plants throughout uh, the year, and the, the the importance of one particular type of plant in in a given area that's going to change across the West. Mm-hmm. And so that you know that gets complex. In Utah, as an example, we had um, record-breaking fat measurements on mule deer that were captured in December of, of 2021. And the, it surprised us a little bit from the standpoint of the summer of 2021 was really bad drought. Like April, May, June were really, really, really dry. Yes. Uh, we ended up losing lots of fawns early. Uh, that year, and then the monsoon moisture turned on in August, September, mm-hmm. even a little bit of October of 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then subsequent to that, which we didn't have in 2022, the month of November was really warm, and animals were eating even fall green, green up from cheatgrass all throughout November. And the population fondo ratios were low because a lot of the fawns had been lost before the monsoon moisture came. So you've got those those adult females, not a high percentage of them are nursing. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, they've got access to green up. That green up is persisting really long through the fall in, with this warm November. So they're just stuffing their face all through November. And when we caught them with the helicopter in December of 2021, they they were fat and sort of record fat for most of the management units where we're catching deer in December of 2021. Uh, and there's a lot going into that. In December of 2022, we had good moisture, even a better spring, uh, and even maybe better summer moisture in 2022. Yep. But the, the difference, uh, the animals were not record fat. The difference there was a much higher percentage of fawns carried through the summer. And so uh, lactation demands, energy demands on the adult females to nurse their fawns in 2022 were much higher. And then November was cold. Yes, it was. And I don't, I don't think it's the temperature per se and how it affects mule deer uh, because they're, they've got pretty good insulation and they've got a pretty low thermal neutral zone. But I think cold temperature with some snow cover on the Forbes and the green up wasn't there in 2022. And so the animals were not as fat, but that's just a few of the things Robbie that are going into the concept of habitat and the concept of nutrition. And and you'll notice how complex it is. It's timing of precipitation. It's whether or not they're nursing fawns, all that kind of stuff is playing in. And, and to me, influencing most strongly things like survival things like fawn weights things like antler size down the road so as hunters since we can't do a lot about the precip um but what can we do to support their nutrition i guess is my is my question what where do we spend our money our time what 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 are we able to deliver on improving nutrition for mule deer. Yeah, so to me, we we should all be uh, supporting the state agency wherever we're interested in hunting. Most of those state agencies have active programs to try and restore, improve habitat. So we should be doing that. In addition, we should all be members of 
some of the nonprofit organizations that are interested in conservation and management of mule deer, because those nonprofit organizations, you know, organizations like the Mule Deer Foundation, Sportsman for Fish and Wildlife, Muley Fanatics, and there's others, are actively raising money, putting a lot of that money into monitoring, into habitat restoration, uh, you know, those sorts of things. So I think from you know, your question, what should we be doing to help mule deer? I think that's it from my my chair and standpoint. The other thing we ought to be doing from sort of a more, we ought to just be a little more strategic about our hunting, in my opinion. We ought to be thinking, okay, I've got so many points in this particular state. What's going on with the winter? What's going on with the fire scenario? Where are some some good precipitation years? And then maybe I ought to be putting in for a unit four and five and six years down the road based on what's happening right now this year. And so that adds a little bit of a layer to your normal sort of strategy about where you're putting in and which states and which hunts and all that. But I think that could also be part of what we do as hunters in order to, you know, have those experiences we want to have. No, I'm glad you bring that up because that kind of throws out the window, uh, the 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 catchphrase that's in, been in the hunting industry for about 20 years. What's your long-term draw strategy? <laughs> well, so many things. Point creep has ruined that for me. I have no long-term draw strategy because I can't draw what I want. So I'm not even worried about that stuff anymore compared to the, you know, the Robbie Denning of 15 years ago. And but with yeah. what you said, all these things, you know, fires and and habitat and 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 winners and you know, all these other things that go in. It sounds like short-term draw strategy might be where it's at, you know, thinking on your feet for, you know, what's going on right now this year, what can I take advantage of? What do I need to avoid? Uh, and I'm sure a lot of hunters are thinking that way, but, you know, I know there's some of us, especially high point holders, uh, like myself in some States, you know, we just hold on to the dream, <laughs> you know, the, no 23 points is going to do it. I know I'm going to get there, you know, I, and, oh, now it's 25. Dang it all. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, to me, that's becoming less and less part of the, 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 uh, the, the uh, my, my formula for success. If there is one of, of getting big bucks is, is, uh, that long-term stuff, it's just not working anymore. And, uh, the short-term stuff is where it's at. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And Randy, I, I want to point out to our listeners, if you didn't catch in, catch it here on his top four list, um, Predator management is not in there. Now, maybe it's it's a, it's a sub of one of these, but, you know, I didn't hear you really hating on the coyotes and hating on the lions and hating on the bears and the bobcats and all those other things. Now, I, I want to be clear to everybody. I want to be the only predator on the landscape. I, I really do. I, I I wish that were possible, but I, I, I've come to realize that's not really going to happen. And that could have been what was really driving some of the 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 boom of mule deer in the 60s is there was not a lot of predators including eagles believe it or not randy i know guys that were shooting hired by the government to shoot eagles back in the day can you imagine that you know because they were they were predators they would get a permit you know too many eagles killing the sheep you know could you imagine that now on a wide scale you know maybe maybe it's even happening on a small scale but on a wide scale but anyways on the whole predator thing is I, I want to be the only predator, but since I know I can't be the only predator, I've, I've kind of learned to live with them and, 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 and work around them and, and those type of things. But where are you with predators in this top four list? You know, why didn't they make, why didn't they get named in one of the, one of the four things that influence the number of big bucks? Yeah, that's a good question. The, I mean, predation definitely plays a role. Um, 
this this list that I sort of put together here was I was thinking more about what grows big antlers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly, if you're if you're going to think about what produces healthy mule deer populations, which definitely can influence antlers, predation plays a role. Um, especially, uh, it depends a little bit on what type of predator you're talking about. Uh, we we have seen evidence of some top down uh, suppression of mule deer populations by mountain lions, in particular in Utah. What do you mean but, by top down? Yeah, so. The ecologists and the scientists will talk about uh, prey populations like mule deer can be limited by, from bottom-up forces. So they will talk about bottom-up control, which would be maybe uh, nutrition limitations. Okay, okay gotcha. Uh, where you don't have enough nutrition. You're at carrying capacity. Your survival rates are a little low. Your animals aren't as healthy. They're more susceptible to disease. They're more susceptible to predation by certain predators. And, but really what's going on is a lack of food and nutrition and you're limited by groceries bottom up. And then there can be other scenarios where maybe there's too many predators, there's an imbalance and populations are limited from top down. It, in Utah's big monitoring effort, uh, we have found evidence of top down predation, uh, but it's uh, less common than the evidence for bottom up. So you know, it's maybe 15 or 20% of the management units we've really looked at closely would show evidence uh, at any given time of being regulated by predators, whereas the others would be more in line with nutritional limitations. Gotcha. So maybe 15 to 20% of them, it's the top down, it's the predators that are causing it. So that might be worth really investing in, in those particular areas, but in the other yes. areas, it's the bottom up. And that's what we talked about supporting these conservation organizations, including the state yes. that are improving yeah. habitat, owning habitat, you know, all of those different things. And it sounds like that could be 85% of the units. And that's why I always say that, that and, and, and I tie it to habitat, but it's, it's really tying to your nutrition is that that's where the long game is, is for me is, is investing in the habitat. Um, because, you know, I've worked on predation studies here in Idaho. I've volunteered my own time for him. I worked on some of the early uh, studies that Mark Hurley did. He's out there in the literature. And, you know, what I walked away from that is, is that, yeah, I mean, it can help, but it costs a lot of money to manage predators. And you have to, you have to keep that effort going long-term compared to, you know, like every time our fish and game buys a piece of habitat somewhere protects protects a migration corridor that's that's long-term stuff there that's not just hey we killed you know 600 coyotes in this unit and well next next year we got to do it again if we want the same results and you know and again i'd love to kill 600 coyotes in every unit every year i would but it's it's just not it's just not feasible possible um so you know correct me where i'm wrong there randy but that that's where i'm coming from when i say you know the long game is habitat yeah and and you, you you want to deal you want to have you know educated discussions and make educated decisions and you, and you got to deal with both the predation and the nutrition side they are interrelated and they're interrelated you know in the sense that if you're going to have healthy adult females they're going to produce larger fawns those larger fawns are going to be less susceptible to mortality and less susceptible to predation especially predation by some species like coyotes. And so you'll see a strong relationship with, you know, 
the size uh, and the weight of a six-month-old fawn and whether it survives the year. And the bigger fawns are going to survive much better than the smaller fawns, and that's survive the winter, not starve to death, but it's also escape predation from species like coyotes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So and so they're connected and they're interrelated. The other thing that we ought to at least be thinking about, especially this year, is if we're going to have some of our deer populations decreased drastically, like we are with the with winter loss, the relative importance of predation and top down forces can change quickly. So if we lose, for example, eighty percent of the mule deer adult females on a couple of the units like we have in Utah then the predators and the lions are not going to suffer a, a similar corresponding immediate loss like that. And so you're going to have a higher, relatively high predator population on top of a now much reduced and smaller mule deer herd. And then I think predation will then exert a little bit bigger impact and something we at least ought to be aware of and managing for, try to help these herds maybe rebound a little bit quicker. Uh, and so there is a place. Uh, and we have uh, data that are pretty compelling that predation can play a role. But long term, like you're saying, the best return on our investment is going to always rest with making sure we're conserving, restoring, and managing habitat. That's going to be the bottom line long term for mule deer. All right. We agree on that. And I agree with what you said, too. When you get these um, drops in population, that's what we learned in our predator studies here. That's when predator management actually becomes more important and more effective uh, because yeah. they can suppress a mule deer population at a low level for an extended period of time. They never get back to that inflection point where, you know, the births are outnumbering the deaths. And uh, and that is a good place to spend money managing predators. Uh, so, so I'm with you on that. I'm glad you clarified that point. Uh, U Utah, the way I understand it, you're going to have a, a pretty good uh, – uh, case study going on the next few years because it sounds like if it's effective, your uh, number of lions is not going to be as many on the landscape. Am I correct? Uh, yeah, and there's so there's been some changes, um, and one I potentially get myself in trouble here. Yeah, you don't have but, to. It, 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 uh, I, the, I'm not. Uh, I'm not talking about the way that the that the law was brought in. You know, that's very uh, controversial. I'm just talking right. about. You know, if if we do have less lions on the landscape the next five years, uh, hopefully we're collecting some of that data. Is was was that a a good decision or not? No matter how it came about, was that a good decision or not? Did it help mule deer? Or did it hurt them? That's that's yeah. the context of my question. Yeah. No. And and so yeah, there'll there'll be an example uh, of that to to watch here in Utah for the next number of years um but even that can get really controversial i was talking to a friend the other day and we we've uh partnered with udwr and we've actually collared a few lions um here along the wasatch front and we've got one of them uh goes by the name m42 so this is a big male uh that's on the kind of the upper end of how big they get Man, he sounds like a gang member or something m42 yeah, well, just wait till you hear what he's been doing, and, it, and it, it'll even sound more like a gang member. So this M42 has been online uh, for about you know eight months or so. Big male, uh, focused really. So what we're doing is we're, we're collaring these, and then you can observe where they go, and then 
if they kill something, they'll spend, you know, whatever, four, five, six days, even a little longer. And then after they leave, we'll then go hike in and investigate what they're eating and try and understand, is it an elk? Is it a deer? Is it a male, female? Look at the bone marrow. Is it a, you know, healthy one? Pull teeth. Is it an old or young one? Just trying to get a sense of how their seasonal prey composition changes uh, across the year, but also across age and sex classes of the, of the mountain lions. And this one has been really interesting because he's an elk specialist, Robbie. And so he is out there, has been, you know, for six or eight months, primarily killing elk. And then uh, from the GPS caller data, it looks like uh, by all accounts that he has you know, individually been responsible for the destruction of two batches of kittens and two dens. Uh, well, like grizzly some, bears are eat, eating their yeah. own. Right. Or like African lions. And so, you know, not uncommon with other species. Maybe that helps bring uh, the female lion more quickly into estrus and he's able to, you know, pass on his genes into the next generation more quickly. But I've been thinking about that a lot over the last number of months and you know how does that the proportion of large male tom lions in a population who are maybe primarily taking elk and also killing kittens and removing kittens how does that play into these changes that we're going to have in harvest strategy for mountain lions in utah and that stuff keeps me up at night robbie yeah man because we don't want to kill that cat I like that cat. M42. Yeah. I'm going to get a t-shirt made. <laughs> From a mule deer perspective, how do we make more of that that one? And that, that's what I mean on all this stuff. That's why I love talking to you guys, even though sometimes I leave these podcasts with more questions than answers, is it's always more complicated than than, than what we think. And, uh, you know, the nuances that are out there, it, it's, it's just amazing. But I think that's why we got to have all these conversations and keep the emotion low so we can have good, clear thinking from, you know, the, the management level, the state level, you know, the, the education level, guys like you, um, all, all the way down to how I'm, how I'm going to be hunting this year. You know, I I got to be making good decisions, and and I find that emotion it's kind of low on the list in making good decisions. And you just gave a, a good example of it. I don't want that cat to die. Suddenly, I like mountain lions, at least one. So, <laughs> yeah. well, cool, Randy. Um, I think we got through everything I had on the outline here. There was one other question. It may have answered itself, but you know, I want to give people a specific uh, example of a place that I hear about when this whole genetics versus age versus nutrition, the theme of this podcast, although we talked about many other things. is uh, so, so this is for you, Randy. Why do some areas like the Frank Church of Idaho, which is you know Idaho County, uh, Custer County, uh, I think Valley's in there somewhere, uh, why do they contain prime age and older age bucks? And this is related to just extreme backcountry, you know, the, the the most remote wilderness in the lower 48. Why do they contain significant numbers of prime age and older age class bucks, but very very few Boone and Crockett bucks? Um, why why would a place like that just you hardly see it represented in the record book? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I'm aware of the front church, but I'm not overly familiar. So help me out. The first question I'm going to ask you, Robbie, is what habitat type is it? What kind of elevations are up in that Frank Church wilderness? Is it high elevation? 
It's high elevation and quoting one of my friends from the BLM who was, oh, he did something with Habitat with him. He said that that's called the batholith of Idaho. And that's related to the type of soils and, and stone that's in the area. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's not deep, rich, red clay like what we see in, in some of these other areas. But to, and so to your question, uh, yeah, it, it's a lot of high elevation. You know, so the rivers are pretty low, probably three. 3,000 feet, but you know, the, you got, you know, seven, 8,000 foot mountains back in there. So, so, and the deer spend the majority of their time, like a lot of places at the higher elevations in the summer during hunting season. Is it Aspen conifer or is it more lodgepole? It's the first place I'm going and, and not, not having a lot of familiarity with the Frank church, but the first place I'm going to go is what does the nutritional landscape look like for mule deer? Not a lot of aspen, not a lot of of conifer habitat, not that mixed mixed stuff that you see in kind of the southern portion of Idaho, all the way down into Utah, Nevada, um, you know, and uh, Colorado. Uh, It it doesn't look like that. It it's it's. I don't, I don't know all the tree types. I'm I'm not a habitat biologist by any means, but it doesn't look anything like that. Yeah. So my that's the first place I would go would be. What does the nutritional profile look like in the Frank Church for mule deer, and how has that looked over the last fifty years? Have you know? Have we not had a lot of disturbance? Is are the plants um, sort of aging out? In the are they senesced? Uh, that's the that's the first. Those are the first questions I would ask in the first place that I would go and point to as a potential reason why it's not producing. Boone and Crockett animals would be the nutritional landscape and how that has been in place. And maybe there's, you know, less productive, less nutritious plants available to mule deer than maybe other places in Idaho. That would be the first place I'd go. Yeah. And I can answer a little bit of that. The the big parts of the Frank church did burn in the late nineties, early two thousands, like a lot of places. And And some of this could be what you have as number two, you know, your percent harvest rate is even if that buck population did climb, excuse me, the size of the bucks did climb, it's harder to detect, you know, in a place that's literally 25 miles from the trailhead, you know, there's just not going to be a lot of participation to detect that, but it has had disturbance in certain areas. Yet historically, you look back even through the heyday of mule deer and even to recently, just, just a handful of record book bucks. I'm not saying it's not a good place to hunt and 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 sure. you know i want to be clear to people i talk a lot about boone and crockett just because that's the gauge that we can use for where the biggest bucks have traditionally been but it's not the only definition of a big deer i talk about that in my first book i i, I put boone and crockett score actually as the as the the lowest number on the list for a definition of a big deer and and the right. frank church checks all the other boxes above that you can get you know age um yeah. it, it definitely can get old there but even when they do you you still don't see a big proportion of those and i think you nailed it randy is it, it just and so did my friend at the blm it's just it's just 
not nutritious habitat. Uh, And, and, and that gets right back to what your number one on the list here is, is nutrition. They, they just don't have it, but I wouldn't discourage people that were looking for a backcountry experience, hardcore experience. um, uh, And, and they, you know, you can kill a really big buck back there. I, I I see them. Mm -hmm. I see what, what guys have done back there, but per buck harvested, it's, it's definitely not even close to what you see in, in some of these other uh, counties that I named in the beginning of the podcast. And it's, it's just, it's just neat stuff to know. And, um, yeah. and, and one other question I had, and I think that we've answered it is that let's just say we took, you know, one of the best counties in the West, Eagle, Colorado, uh, Colorado, Caribou County, Idaho, and we transplanted a hundred bucks from those, those units, um, or those counties into the Frank church, would they reach their genetic potential? Yeah. So that's a great a great question. What I'm going to mention as we answer that and talk about that, everybody ought to be familiar with, it's it's a different species, it's red deer, mm-hmm. but there is some really cool research. It's on the Boone and Crockett Club's uh, webpage. Okay. But if you just get into a web browser and you search for, and I'm going to butcher this name, uh, his, his name is Franz, F-R-A-N-Z. And I don't even know how to say this last name, Vogt, V-O-G-T. And this is uh, a person who did some research, a large-scale experiment between 1927 and 1942, right before World War II. project actually kind of came to an end because of World War II. But they were asking these same questions. Is it genetics? Is it nutrition? What influences antler size in red deer, which are really similar to elk? Mm-hmm. And I, as anyways, you can do a search for that and you can read it. It's a really interesting read. The take-home message from these very meticulous uh, research studies, they had captive animals. They were measuring things like how, you know, how animal density. They had animals from places that traditionally produced really large antlers. And then they had animals from a place that traditionally produced small animals and the take-home message is it for red deer was within five generations of being on improved and increased nutrition the animals that before were maybe like the places i hunt or maybe like the frank church they're producing old animals but the antlers aren't that big within five generations world record class just by boosting nutrition and primarily, and and maybe more importantly, nutrition of the mother in in subsequent generations. So five generations from sort of average run-of-the-mill antlers to world record class. And conversely, when the experiments ended and they did no you know no longer were feeding improved nutrition, within a few generations, those antlers were back to being sort of average. Wow. Wow. And, and, and so everybody and, ought to look that up. It's a fascinating read from a, a study that was done, you know, detailed notes and everything in the 1920s and 30s. Pretty interesting. I already did. Google's so smart. All I had to type in was uh, Franz, F R A N Z V O G T. 
S genetics and it came right up and uh, I, I am going to bookmark that and I am going to read it. And uh, I noticed the first thing you said were the dates, 1927 to 1942 hunters are hunters. We always have been. I think if we could interpret these cave drawings, uh, they were having the same conversations back then. It's what God put us on the earth to do is to manage the animals. It's in the heart of man to manage the animals. And that's why I love having these conversations with people like Randy Larson, professor at BYU. Uh, I felt like this was a great discussion, Randy. Like a lot of these discussions, sometimes I walk away with more questions than answers, but that's okay too. I think that's how we grow as hunters. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. And if you ever want to come back, just let me know. And if, if there's ever an empty seat on that helicopter or you need somebody to manage your GPS collar, specifically for the bucks, you know, I'm kind of a busy guy, probably couldn't take on all the does and fawns. <laughs> But if you ever need somebody to manage those, man, just you got my email. Let me know. I'm, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make the time. <laughs> Sounds great. Good talking with you, Robbie. Appreciate what you do and fun conversation this morning. All right, man. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you, Randy. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, everybody.